and welcome to Tape Ops Discussion, where we call our friends and music community notables to chat about their favorite records. Enjoy. Jeff! Good morning. How's it going, brother? Good, man. How are you? Oh, I can't complain. It's fucking cold up here in the mountains. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're in the mountain the mountain retreat hiding from COVID. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. I think we are rolling. Take one. Welcome to Discussion. I'm Jeff Stanfield. This week, we have drummer, producer Eric Eldanius discussing Miles Davis's Nefertiti. So Miles Davis, Nefertiti, one of my favorite records of all time. Yeah, yeah. Why did uh, you choose this one? Uh, God, I mean, there are so many different reasons. One thing that just naturally happened was um, when I was in music college, this was basically the one record that I, I found myself listening to this record every single day and i'm not exaggerating it wasn't like you know from top to bottom but it was it was always something you know from this record that i would listen to every day and it became a record also that i truly studied obviously being a drummer and having you know tony williams basically schooling the whole world in terms of you know musicality was just it was just a wealth of information on this record for me and it just—it was something about it that just pulled me in, like it, you know, as you know, like it has this haunting, you know, ambient atmosphere about it that just—it just—I don't know. For me, it just pulled me in, and it was like I kind of jumped in and just didn't want to come out. <laughs> this, this record, especially this—this this is you know the second great quintet that Miles had. Um, you know, you got Ron Carter, Wayne Shorter, Tony Williams, Herbie Hancock, and Miles. It's a good recipe. Miles always had just an incredible ability to create like a mystique that wasn't always present on a lot of jazz records from the period. I mean, there's something so voodoo about Miles Davis records. And I don't mean, I don't even mean as like the stuff that he got into later with Bitches Brew and et et cetera, where things really got more tribal and heavily influenced by African drumming. Even his quintet records and going back to kind of blue, there's an air around, around these records that's just, um, it's a little hazy, a little smoky, a little darker than your your average jazz record at the time. It was definitely more adventurous and darker, and uh, you know, than some of the other stuff that he had done. And I think that that's what you know just pulled me in. You know, I just fell in love with it. Yeah, they're like the themes are very short and 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 very strange. <laughs> like if you think about it, like I think maybe it's only. Pinocchio or something that has more of a traditional theme. Everything else is kind of, it just, it seems very random. It seems very um, sort of unrehearsed and fresh, and which of course, which is, you know, that's a wonderful thing. You know, it shouldn't sound, you know, rehearsed or planned. This was the last acoustic record that, that's that, right. that that's Miles right. made. 
um, fully yeah. acoustic because as they got into Miles in the Sky, um, you know, they started incorporating electric instruments into the into the fold. So, um, and and it's also just you know we we've talked about this before, but. Um, the the first track. I mean, let's just talk about that one for a second. Nefertiti. Um, yeah. Essentially, the band is is playing a repeated theme, and the rhythm section is soloing, and that's how the the song develops. Yep. Yeah. And that's another great example of of you know Tony's drumming and his dynamics and just his little explosions basically throughout the song. Um, yeah, and talk about haunting. I mean, that theme is just, it just goes and goes, and it's just... The way they keep it fresh is and and it, keep the interest there, not just playing the same thing over and over. That it's you know it, it's slightly different every single time that they they play it. Um, sometimes the the horns are falling over each other. Yeah, that's right. They they kind of push each other in that way. They, yeah, it's, they're chasing each other a little bit. And again, it's one of these one of these tunes is so circular that you there's. It feels like it's on a loop. If you if you looped it, you could just keep <laughs> listening to it for hours, you know. And you would hear, and you would kind of never tire of it. I mean, I've been listening to this record again for probably over well over twenty years, maybe maybe more. I think I first heard it in like eighty seven or something like that was when I got hip to this record. Yeah, it never gets old. It never gets old. Do you, do you remember the first time you heard it? I can't remember exactly. No, um, but I was probably I would say fifteen or sixteen, maybe. And what's crazy is, you know, like Tony Williams is like probably like 21 or 22 or something when he recorded this. And it's just like mind boggling how ahead of the game he was and just his maturity and his playing, his musicality, his tone, his touch, the swing, like everything. It's not even about jazz. It's just like his musicality as a musician, as a drummer was just... um, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's hard to even explain it. Yeah, he was the youngest of that crew for sure, but that whole band yeah. was quite young. I mean, Herbie was young, Wayne was young, Ron Carter was a young man. I mean, Miles always had a great sense of what was a- around the corner. Yeah, I read somewhere where um, I guess the first time Miles uh, saw Tony play, I can't remember who it was that he was playing with at the time. Um. Uh, but he said something along the lines of like, that's the baddest motherfucker I've ever heard, you know, something like that. And, <laughs> and that was it. He just knew that he had to have him. Well, let's talk about a couple of the other tracks on this one. Um, sure. Any particular favorites for you? I would say that Fall is my favorite. It's just something about that that just, um, you know, basically the world stops every time I put that on. It's like, I can't do anything else. I can't have it on in the background or anything. Like, it requires 100% of my attention because it's just so beautiful. Absolutely stunning. 
Yeah, that tune for me too. I, I I agree. I think that might be my my favorite on the record. I threw this on. I was driving, um, and I was parked at a, at a at a light. Being being fall here, the leaves are starting to fall, and um, I was it was a little windy that day, and I and I watched this this leaf get blown around, and <laughs> and it, this tune was on, and it was. This is the perfect soundtrack. It was so magical. Yeah, it was the perfect <laughs> soundtrack. I was just like, holy cow. Like, you, you couldn't craft a better piece of music for the scene. And without without seeing it, it it's what it feels like. If, if you don't know this tune and you put it on, you'll know what we're talking about. And, and, that, yeah. is, and that is that it does feel like wind and little puffs and bursts of wind and leaves tumbling around and the way that the tones reflect the light and uh of a perfect fall day you know yeah yeah no there's so so many elements to that song um or composition um like especially the piano solo and the way tony's kind of going into double time back and forth and stuff like that is just absolutely stunning. This this was recorded at 30th Street Studios in in New York. Um, in the that's st- right. That's that's where they did uh, Kind of Blue as well, right? I think so. A lot of records uh, that came out on Columbia were recorded there. That studio has since uh, been gone. I mean, uh, you know, Glenn Gould recorded the Goldberg Variations there. Um, uh, Aretha Franklin recorded there. Uh, so so many uh, Charles Mingus. I mean, so many amazing people made records there, and I think they put a five story yeah. apartment building. Of course, the, the totally oh, nondescript. Gosh. Yeah, it's a stunning sounding room, and that's what I love also about this recording is that you can really hear the room and you know the bleed from all the instruments going into each other through the microphones, and it just creates creates um, you know just the the overall ambience of this record that I think is so beautifully captured. Yeah, I mean, you're not a jazz drummer in your sort of day job as as the drummer in Billy Idol's band, but like where where do you see the spirit of this record showing up in your playing? So, what's funny is basically up until I was 20 or so, that was my main thing. All I was doing was playing I mean, I was playing rock and roll and stuff like that too, R&B and funk. But that was my whole plan. I was going to move from Sweden to New York City and become a jazz drummer. That was my whole thing. And then something went terribly wrong <laughs> along the way, and <laughs> I ended up moving to Los Angeles instead. Uh, but, I mean, I think where it shows up in my playing, I think there's, even though I play in a rock band, I think there's a maybe a... A loose aspect to to maybe how I play kind of in the same way that I'm obviously I'm not comparing myself by any means here but you know you hear a lot of people talking about you know John Bonham and his you know great rock drumming and he had this swing and swagger to his playing because of the same reasons you know I think he you know he grew up 
listening to jazz records. And, and so I think for me, and this is also just something that other people have told me that they, they can hear in my rock drumming that I, you know, that I've been uh, playing a lot of jazz in my life, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Tony Williams was just mind-boggling. His energy was so rock, no matter what. Like, he, he played with yeah. such insane fury. Yeah, I never got to see him live, which is um, unfortunate. Did you ever get to see him? I did get to see him. I took my dad to see him at the Regatta Bar in Boston, and it was the loudest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Was it the era of the big... Big yellow Gretsch kit. Yes, exactly. Fully mic'd up in a you know what was essentially a hotel conference room. I remember uh, these sort of well-heeled men and women in their sixties, late sixties, uh, from the from the Boston suburbs or you know Back Bay, right? You know, with cloth napkins stuffed into their ears. <laughs> um, it was one of the funniest scenes that I can remember, and um, and it was loud. But man, I, he. You know, Tony Williams played with such absolute fury and intensity. It's violent. Violence and, and just so, like absolute fire. I mean, and that's what I think about every time I hear him play. I'm just like, man, it's just there's a fire inside. Yeah, I mean, God, I, I can go down the, the YouTube uh, rabbit hole late at night sometimes. And, I'm you know, you just sit in, in utter shock and disbelief like. How the hell did he do that? You know, yeah. he was a teen when he joined Miles' band. I mean, I I think he was seventeen or something like that. He was, I think so, yeah, yeah, really young, like four and the more. Four, and, yeah, yep, yep. That's insane. That record is just like, and the tempos and just his command of of. Oh my god, it's just the amount of confidence in his playing at that age is just. It, it's really inspiring. It's like, man, yeah, and it's even you know with, with uh, Nefertiti. Like even today, when I listen to it, like there's always something new that I discover. You know, whether it's, you know, you know the way Tony plays or the way you know the guys interact with each other. Obviously, now I listen to it also from a point of view of, of, you know, the recording aspect, like, wow, how do they get those tones and all that stuff? But there's always something, I feel like there's always something new that I learned from this record. And that's, you know, that's a pretty great testament to, you know, an amazing record that it can actually do that year after year, you know, like I, I can, can never get tired of it. Thanks for listening. Discussion is created by Tape Op, the creative music recording magazine. Free subscriptions are available at tapeop.com along with our regular podcast and online content.